on today's show. The schedule came out just a few days ago in the NBA world, and we'll circle some games to watch for the Atlanta Hawks in the upcoming season. And after that, your mailbag questions we often do on this podcast. We'll touch on all of that and more on the way. You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1539 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you on a Monday evening here in late August. And today's show is brought to you by Bird Dogs. Go to birddogs.com slash LockedOnMBA or enter the promo code LockedOnMBA when you get there for a free white tech hat with any single purchase. You won't want to take your Bird Dogs off. We promise you. Check it out at birddogs.com slash LockedOnMBA. And today's show We'll be diving into some mailbag questions as well as some schedule stuff. But first, I should remind you at the top of the podcast to make us your first listen each and every day. Please subscribe to the show anywhere you find your podcasts, places like Apple and Spotify, as well as YouTube on the video side. And if you missed it last week, we did three episodes in the middle of August, including a two-part talk with Andrew Kelly of Peachtree Hoops, as well as the schedule release on Friday. And we'll build off of that right now. People were kind of asking me to dig into the schedule a little bit more. I'm happy to do that here at the top of the podcast. I'm going to use a question from Dusty to do just that. So we'll dive in right now. Question from Dusty, who says, if, if you could only watch five or ten of the 82 games for the Hawks this season, which games would you pick? Also got a question from Joseph that I will use to kind of uh, dual answer these about five road trips to make this season. If you are a Hawks fan with the resources to do that. Another question actually somewhere else about tr- trying to pick an eight-game season ticket package. So I'm going to kind of put them all together and uh, add this uh, sort of different, a little bit differently as a result of all of this. So first, I'm going to name five road trips. Then I'm going to name eight home games to circle. Hopefully that answers all the questions. And obviously, I want to be very clear about this. This is definitely in the eye of the beholder. My list is not better than anybody else's. It is what it is. It's preference. It's what you want to see. It's what you're circling on the season calendar. It's uh, you know it's days of the week. All that stuff should be considered on all of this. But my personal list is as follows. On the road side, I'm going to leave off the season opener because it's always fun. But if you're rooted for being the opener, a road game in Charlotte would not make my list. So I'm going to cross that one off for now. I will hopefully be in that in the building for that one, but I will not include that one. But beyond that, the five road trips, again, not just games, road trips that I would make would be as follows in order of when they happen. So November 9th is a Mexico City game. Hawks, Magic. It's almost cheating to use this one, but I, it would be a great thing to go ahead and attend this one if you have the ability to do so. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. Honestly, it's one of those, uh, you know, I, it's not my, my only job. So it's one of those things that have to be logistically and cost cutting and all that fun stuff. But the Hawks play the Magic. It gets some standalone attention on NBA TV that night. It's in the middle of the week, which could be challenging, but certainly a uh, kind of a one-of-a-kind trip to see the Magic and the Hawks play on November 9th in Mexico City. From there, I would circle November 28th in Cleveland. That is the fourth and final game of the in-season tournament group play for the Hawks. The Cavs are a good team, and also that could determine whether the Hawks actually get to advance to the semifinals, etc., of the, of the in-season tournament. We'll know by then. I wanted to highlight one of these sort of new games there, and I will circle that one as the one I would choose. Sort of not the only option, but something I would keep an eye on. Uh, from there, I would say there's a two-game trip to Toronto in the middle of December. It's, this, it's December 13th and 15th up in Toronto. The Raptors might not be great this year. 
but it's two games in three days in a very cool cosmopolitan city up in Toronto. The ball of Siakam buzz, that stuff's kind of out there too. I'm interested in Toronto locally in Atlanta. And again, a, a three-day trip that you see two good games in a cool city. I would definitely circle that one. Um, I would also say January 22nd through 24th in Sacramento against, uh, sorry, the Kings and then the Warriors in back-to-back games across three days. Another one where it's not like explicitly a series against one opponent, but two games basically across the bay from each other within an hour or so drive. And uh, two, obviously, fun opponents, the Kings and Warriors play entertaining basketball. Two good teams as well from last season. The Kings, you know, could score with anybody, obviously. Um, the Warriors are the Warriors, Steph, Clay, etc., Draymond. That would be an entire uh, fun experience to check out those arenas. Also two great arenas by, by all accounts, Golden One in Sacramento and then the uh, Chase Center in Oakland slash San Francisco. Uh, and then finally, I would circle as my last trip, March 17 and 18 in L.A., so the Hawks play the Clippers and the Lakers on back-to-back days in the same building. Two playoff caliber teams, obviously, with those two opponents. Um, that would be what I would circle, and L.A. is an awesome place to be. Uh, only drawback there is it's right in the middle of the NCAA tournament, which is kind of a tough, a t- tough sell for me as someone who tries to cover all kinds of stuff. But that is a fun back-to-back in terms of what I'd be circling there. And uh, one more note here, the Hawks do have a three-game road trip to New York City, but two of those games – are against the Nets. The Nets are just okay, I think, this season. And uh, one of those, obviously, against the Knicks would be a headliner. So that, that's one to certainly consider taking as well. That'd be the runner-up sort of honorable mention for me. But that's what I would go with on the five-game road trips that I would suggest. On the home side, I'll do a little bit less uh, commentary. But on the home side, I would say the home opener against the Knicks on October 27th, an awesome game. Not just because of the home opener, but because uh, the Knicks, there's lots of Knicks fans, I'm sure, around the building, a good opponent, uh, lots of buzz at that point in the season. I would say Saturday, November 11th against Miami. That's a division game, of course, against the reigning conference champions. I would put that one on the agenda. Um, the Sixers coming to town on November 17th. That's an in-season tournament game, which is certainly important and notable this time around for the first time. Also, a weekend game on a Friday night should be a lot of fun there. I would say Monday, December 11th, against the Denver Nuggets. That's, of course, the reigning champion, Denver Nuggets. Jokic is in town, must-see TV there, one of the most fun teams to watch. I would say a tough game for the Hawks, but uh, Jokic is also super, super durable, so you could actually rely on him actually playing in that game. That's probably helpful for your planning experience. Um, from there, December 28th – is sorry, December 23rd, I should say, is a Saturday against the Grizzlies. Number one, the Christmas crowds somewhere around that date are usually good because kids are out of school – Families are in town, lots of like sellouts and good crowds then. Memphis is a good team, of course, and it's a Saturday, so there'll be a lot of buzz in the building for that one. Then I would say MLK Day is an obvious choice, but certainly the right choice against the Spurs. Doesn't mean it's wrong, just to be obvious, because you know, it should be a sellout, should be a great atmosphere, um, choir intros, all that stuff, and then hopefully Women Yama plays for the Spurs, but certainly a national TV game, a good spotlight for the Hawks, and uh, sort of that, that tradition of playing on MLK Day in the afternoon in Atlanta. Uh, a couple more here. Uh, Friday, February 2nd against the Suns. Phoenix should be incredibly intriguing this year with their all-in roster. That's you know KD and Booker and Beal, etc. Also, a Friday night game should be a lot of fun there. And then the last one I would say in order is Tuesday, February 27th against Utah, which is the return of John Collins to Atlanta. The Jazz could also be a fun young team this year, but certainly Collins is the headliner there. 
there are some other ones that I would at least throw in there as reasonable inclusions. Uh, you know, the Lakers game, when they come to town, always fall on January 30th. The Warriors, same thing, on February 3rd. The Pelicans, if Zion is playing, on March 10th. Uh, Boston comes in twice in March within about a week. Kind of strange to pick one of those because they're literally almost back-to-back. That's always Those are always big games. And then the Bucks come in on a Saturday in late March, March 30th, and that should be one to keep an eye on as well. That's a lot of information to throw at you in a short period of time. I find that podcasts are not the best possible medium for schedule analysis because it's helpful to like see what's in front of you. But I think it's a pretty interesting schedule. I will also point you to the comments that I made on Thursday's evening's show into Friday about how it's a pretty favorable schedule. I think all things considered, not a huge, you know, you know, it's not going to change the entire world with that schedule for the Hawks. But I think things broke pretty well for Atlanta and, uh, you know, back to backs and the relative ease of the schedule, in-season tournament stuff, all that stuff should be still relevant from Friday's show. But that's all I have for now. And sort of uh, get your calendars out. I know I, I have been trying to get some road trips on the books, et cetera, and a, a fun time, especially, especially for the diehards, to dig into their schedules and all that fun stuff in the coming weeks. Okay, we'll have a break now from our sponsors. We'll have plenty more to come, including your mailbag questions. But first, a word from our friends at Bird Dogs. Today's show is brought to you by Bird Dogs. Bird Dogs is fantastic, bringing fit, comfort, and versatility to the table with their products. I feel fantastic, honestly, and comfortable in my own skin. I'm wearing Bird Dogs gear and Bird Dogs stretch khaki, khaki shorts designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and through the leg. Get that sculpted look that you're looking for. It's really uh, an awesome fit, both aesthetically and also just the way that you are comfort and uh, basically the way that you feel as you're wearing their gear. They also fit much better than regular shorts. They haven't made it that stiff, restricting cotton fabric that you're probably familiar with. Bird Dogs fits that issue with a new cloud knit fabric that looks just like khaki but also stretches give me the slimmer fit that actually without having to sacrifice all of that movement that you're looking for they also use anti-sweating fabric to keep you cool and dry all day long and in the end they make awesome products with bird dogs you're gonna check out all of them by going to birddogs.com slash locked on mba when you get there use the promo code locked on mba as well when you use that code they'll throw in a free white tech hat with any purchase one more time check it all out now at birddogs.com slash locked on mba all right, some questions from you, the listener and viewer of the podcast for the rest of the po- rest of this episode, I should say. Uh, first one comes from Jesse, who says, how great would it be for the Hawks if the Sixers blew up? It also seems like the Celtics might be weaker now with Chris Porzingis already hurt, etc. cetera. Uh, I would say this, it is August, and there isn't too much in terms of actionable stuff here, but through the Hawks' lens, it's definitely not a bad thing that Philadelphia may – I want to stress maybe teetering a little bit with the hardened news with, you know, the, some of the rampant Embiid chatter out there. Boston has some uncertainty as well with Porzingis hard being banged up. The Sixer stuff obviously is pretty wild with the stuff that Harden said on the record uh, about Daryl Morey. That's led to some summer speculation that again, Embiid could be having a wandering eye at this point in time. I do think that if they can get Harden to buy back in, they should be pretty good, obviously. But if Harden pulls a Harden and just doesn't want to try very hard or doesn't want to play at all, that obviously would hurt the Sixers quite a bit. And Philly is always one Embiid injury away from floundering because Embiid is so important to what they do on offense and defense, honestly. Boston should be good, obviously, this year. They have uh, either the highest or second highest win total projection in the Eastern Conference. But Porzingis already banged up is not a good thing for the Celtics, which obviously would help the rest of the East. Um, also, KP, while he had a actually a pretty, I've never been a huge pretty this guy. I'll, I'll definitely admit that now. But he was quite good last year in Washington. But still, he's played 57 games or fewer in five of the last eight seasons. Not great. Already kind of a risk by Boston to bring in uh, Porzingis at the expense of Marcus Smart. It was a high ceiling move for sure if it works out. But there's a little bit of downside on that move. So yeah. Anyway, I mean, 
Long story short, it's too early to really know, but it could certainly be good for the Hawks to answer the question because if any projected top teams have more uncertainty, that definitely helps the teams that are not quite always projected to be that high. And, you know, even a team like Milwaukee has a lot of age on it, for instance. Uh, a lot of injuries last year with Chris Middleton, et cetera. Brooke Lopez is, uh, sort of, is certainly an age-related candidate. So the teams at the top of the East are not infallible by any means, and that definitely helps the Hawks at this point in time. Question now from Zach Goodman. A really good one, honestly. I'm going to abbreviate the question a little bit because the, because it was very long and had a lot of context, which is good stuff, which is for podcasting. I'm going to, I'm going to chop, chop it down a little bit. But he says, the recent footage of Trey and Steph is fun and encouraging for Hawks fans, but also there's a risk of setting off another unbearable round of national and other team media folks talking about Trey and how he might actually be a shooting guard. Most Hawks fans know that Trey might be a, sorry, Trey should be a primary offensive initiator and that he also needs to move off the ball more. But Zach's question is, uh, what is the ideal role for DeJounte Murray and what does that look like this year? What are some ways that Quinn Snyder can use Murray off the ball more? And what is your assessment of his off ball game? So lots to get into here, obviously. Zach didn't include this with his email, but there's lots of different layers here. I want to start with Trey actually briefly because there was a talking point last year, especially, but I'm sure to come up this year that Trey could play quote unquote shooting guard. He's the better shooter between he and Murray and all of that stuff. It's very silly in a lot of ways. Trey, uh, is, for one, one of the best playmakers in the entire league, one of the best five, maybe best two or three passers in the entire league. is an awesome, awesome playmaker and passer. It's been proven repeatedly that Trey plus shooting and someone to play the pick-and-roll game with him is a formula for a very, very good offense in and of itself. So the ball has to be in Trey's hands as the number one and primary look for this Hawks team. I think everyone with the Hawks and around the Hawks does know that. With that out of the way, though, Trey does need to improve still as an off-ball player. And I think that Trey uh, needs to buy in. That's always been the number one thing for me. It's not that he cannot do it. It's that he's not been super willing to do it, uh, at least uh, intentionally in terms of his actions on the court. Um, I think Quinn has a good chance to cook that out of him. Again, that's not mean he's going to be playing off the ball all the time. That's important to keep in mind. He's still going to be an on-ball player. That would be bad to take him off the ball too much. The Hawks do need to have uh, sort of Trey get to a point where he can and is willing to be a weapon on off the ball when he's not when he's not doing stuff on the ball. And Quinn already preaches to everyone, not just Trey, to pass and get off the ball and move. And uh, more movement, I think, will be sort of a um, a staple of the offense this, this time around. Uh, Trey is going to have different rules in some respects because he has so much usage and you can't expect him to kind of be flying around all the time. But I think we'll see an uptick in his off-ball activity. That will help everyone, by the way, including DeJounte. Now, to the DeJounte side of the question from Zach. Uh, I'll say this, DeJounte took more threes and made more threes last year than he had in any season of his career to date. That's a nice starting point. Now, he's still only an average three-point shooter at best, but provided he stays healthy, I think DeJounte projects, in my opinion, to set a new high again in attempts and makes because I think Snyder's going to actively push him to do that more than Nate did. Um, there is a ceiling to that. I think DeJounte is not going to be his most natural self in, as a bomber from three-point range. I think he's going to still take some mid-rangers and his floater and all that stuff. But the Hawks, I think, probably want to get Murray more involved in a way that's more similar to what he did in San Antonio early on in his career when he had a smaller role. Now, he's still going to have a high usage role, um, especially when Trey's off the floor. But Murray, for me, can be a more active cutter uh, to the basket and off, and off the ball in general. It's something to sort of focus on for me. There'll be less stagnation in general, I think, with the offense this year. But I think more free flow with Snyder in general. Nate's setup was pretty stagnant. 
Um, not didn't really prioritize cutting off the ball from Trey or DeJounte in a way that should happen more now. And again, to be fair about what I always say about training to buy in about moving off the ball, Murray has to buy in too. It's not just Trey. Uh, he was able to be so much on the ball in San Antonio. I'm talking about Murray now that he has molded his game to that a little bit more often. But when Trey is off the court, Murray can kind of do the on ball thing a lot more. When Trey's on the court, you're going to need him to move more um, intentionally off the ball, a little bit less of the your turn, my turn stuff. So, Zach also asked a longer question, but it would take me forever to answer about what kind of role Murray might be in in a vacuum, uh, just Hawks or not Hawks. Um, basically, like he's not a great shooter or a great defender or a great creator, et cetera. I do think that he got a little bit overrated in terms of like placements on like top 100 lists a couple of years ago in San Antonio. Like, I don't think he's a top 30 player in the league, that kind of thing. But I think that it's going to work better this season because he's going to buy in more. Trey's going to buy in more, and I think most importantly, perhaps they have a more creative and cohesive coaching staff than they had before. Um, but I think that both DeJounte and Trey, if I had to guess right now, will have better seasons than last year. That's not only because of coaching, but because of just their quality of play. And I think all of that puts them in a better position, generally speaking. Now, with DeJounte, a lot of my concern happens on defense, but that's another topic, another topic for another day. But I think in terms of the offense, I do kind of believe that so in an overall sense, we'll just, we'll just say Murray takes more threes this year. Trey gets pushed a lot harder to be sort of a more active participant off the ball when he's not engineering the offense. I would keep an eye on, on DeJounte a lot as a cutter this year, even as a screener. I think Trey has actually done some good jobs, uh, some good work as a screener in the past when he's actually engaged. Go ahead and do that. So that's something to keep an eye on as well as sort of a smaller thing. But I think in general, Less your turn, my turn, more engagement off the ball for both guys. And I think um, it definitely needs to invert itself, take advantage of both guys' strengths. Because, look, Murray's not a great off-ball player. Trey is too good on ball to just be off-ball all the time. So there's a little bit of marriage that has to be figured out there. But I think we'll find the best um, sort of you know margins on all, on all sides compared to what it was last year. And, look, it wasn't a disaster last year. Something I, I keep having to say. It didn't go perfectly by any means, but it didn't just – implode either i think we'll see hopefully they put murray in a better position on second units too when trey's off the court it's not just i don't want to say this negatively but dejounte is not quite good enough to do the trey thing we saw that last year they kind of just like basically said hey dejounte you're gonna be in the tray role when, Trey, when Trey's off the floor and they need more help for him to do that more spacing around him more uh sort of secondary ball handling etc so that's part of this too but i think in general I, I do have some faith in quinn snyder to kind of maximize train dejounte a little bit more uh, and playing off each other playing off the ball and uh, generally just being more egalitarian more free, free flowing a little bit less stagnant than it was in years past okay We'll have one more break here from our sponsors on this podcast, and we'll have much more with your mailbag questions coming up. All right, and we'll end the show with two questions. They're actually kind of paired up for a pretty obvious reason that will become apparent in a second. But a question comes from Selby, who says, how worried are you about the defense if Sadiq Bey is the starting power forward next season when we already had defensive problems with JC being the starting power forward, and he is a much better defender than Bay?" So I'll say this. It's a very reasonable question. Um, I've done a couple of like season preview podcasts in the last couple of weeks on other shows with Nate Duncan on the Dunked On side and Josh Lloyd on Lots on Fantasy Basketball. And I found that it's it's kind of a tough sell if you don't go beyond the surface level. And like I, I think obviously this podcast goes into a lot of depth. It's about one team every day. But if you're more national, I kind of get it because if you just think of it as taking John Collins away and not really replacing him with an external option, I know they brought in Bay last year in the middle of the season, but um, it's kind of hard to explain to someone like how the Hawks can be better 
because they, you know, just roster wise, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But look, on offense, it's a much easier sell after last year because of the way they used Collins in that small spot up role that was not his best, as we talked about ad nauseum last season. He didn't shoot the ball very well. Plus, you have Sadiq Bey, who, by all accounts, and even someone who's a little bit probably lower on Bay than some, his offense is very, very valuable. His shooting, um, his, you know, his you know, bully ball game against smaller opponents, I think he fits very well with Quinn Snyder. And I think it's very easy to sell the offensive pathway to being improved because more of Bay and more of Jalen, of course, but you know, with the way they were using John last year, that's kind of an easier sell. But defensively, it is pretty worrisome to the question from Selby. So we'll get to Jalen in a second. Um, with the other question I referenced, but taking away 30 minutes a game from Collins, which is what it was last year for 71 games. So like, that's a pretty big chunk of minutes. Removing that defense from John Collins is not going to help them on its own. I know there's still somehow this notion out there nationally that Collins is not a good defender. It's just not true. And honestly, like the, like the question said from Selby, he's a much better defender than Sadiq Bay. It's not particularly close. So the hope would be, that the drop-off from Collins to Bay on defense is offset by the shooting on offense. And also, they're going to need, frankly, a lot more defensively from players like DeJounte Murray and DeAndre Hunter this coming season. Trey is going to be what he is. The centers are good. But you need more from the guys who you're paying and expecting to be good defenders. That means Murray and that means Hunter. Because Collins did a lot of lifting for them last year defensively that they're not going to have this time around. Of course, they're also going to get Jalen Johnson on defense. And I think he's going to be a pretty safe bet to be a good defender. I saw that a lot last year in flashes. I think it's important to recognize that his tools versus his like finished product status as a defender, a little bit split right now. I think last year we saw him make a lot of flash plays and he wasn't quite like incredible play in play out, but I think Jalen's defense long-term is really exciting. But the thing is Jalen was already playing some last year. So it's not like you're going just from John to Jalen. You're it's really a lot of John's minutes are going to go to City Bay. So that's kind of where I'm seeing the, the drop off there. But um, I'll say this, it's a lot more difficult to describe how the personnel argument improves the defense this year than it is on offense. Again, offensively, more Bay and more of Jalen's creativity is a very easy sell. But defensively, going from Collins, what they're going to have now is probably a downgrade in a lot of, even in an overall sense, even if you are the biggest Jalen Johnson believer in the world, Jalen was still playing 20 minutes a game last year. So he's not going to play more than 30-ish at the absolute most this year. And you're bringing in a lot more Sadiq Bay. So anyway, I'll just, I'll just say this. Defensively, to answer the question, they're going to need a lot more from coaching. That's Snyder and the whole system there. Uh, Murray, Hunter, and Johnson to make up for Collins. And I would say even more importantly, to go from being the 23rd, 24th, 25th defense to you're hoping to be in the top 17 or 18. I'm not saying they're going to be great defensively because I don't really see a pathway for that to happen this coming season, but you're hoping to be average. That's your goal. Obviously, they're not going to acknowledge that, but on the outside, I think if you're reasonable, the Hawks being an average defense will be very helpful this year. And uh, I think it's going to be mo much more about the other guys than it is about you know Bay approximating Collins because Bay is not as good as Collins defensively. Uh, Jalen, though, will obviously help a lot as he plays more and more. I think the tools there are very obvious. Um, this is the second question that I sort of tied these two together before we get out of, out of here on today's podcast. It comes from John. So John says, assuming the power forward roster stays as it is, and we in theory roll with JJ, wouldn't the Kongwu pair better because of the offensive skill set? Would you see a possibility during the season of CC starting, but OO getting more minutes if not traded? Uh, so before I actually answer the question, I thought it was funny that the two questions that came in like at the same time, basically frame it totally differently. Like one was talking about Bay as a starter 
was talking about Johnson being a starter. If you know me, I uh, forgive this repeat of myself, but if you don't know me, I'll just say this. I, I care less about starting lineups than most people do. I think they are pretty overrated and overstated. Now, I will say they do matter for because because players care about them. Agents care about them. I just personally don't think they're that important. It's more about who finishes and how many minutes you play, in my opinion. But Josh Lloyd on the Watson Fantasy Basketball show last week asked me for a projection. I said my best guess, and it is a guess right now because it's August, is that Bay will start on opening night. But I won't be shocked at all. If it's Jalen Johnson, I'm not like digging my heels in and saying it's going to be Bay for sure. I, I'm not saying that. I would guess it's Bay. My working theory is that as long as Capella's on the team, he's going to start. Um, and you can disagree with that. I, I get on, I get some of that stuff, but I think Capella is too good and is making too much money and is a veteran leader and a, a big voice. Like they're not going to not start him if he's on the team. I don't believe. I'll be pretty shocked if he doesn't start. So I think. They're going to need and want shooting next to him, which means Bay is a better fit with Capella. And then that puts Johnson and the Kongwu more together, which does make sense on a lot of different levels. So that goes into John's question, by the way. A Kongwu does pair better with Johnson on, on offense in particular than Capella does. That's pretty obvious to see, but a is a better ball handler, has more versatility, has the potential to shoot. I'm not sure where we are on that just yet until we see it, but he's at least much more of a threat than Capella is from outside of you know seven feet or so. Um, that isn't to say that Johnson and Capella can play together because Johnson and Capella have played together in the past. This past season, they played 235 minutes together. That was still, though, less than a quarter of the minutes that Jalen played for the full season were with Capella. Uh, at the same time, Akongu and Johnson played 626 minutes together, so more than two and a half times as many minutes as Johnson and Capella. That's going to continue, I think, at this point in time. Um, I think it would continue to be pretty, I'd be pretty shocked if Capella again was on the team and healthy and not starting. So I think that it's going to be a lot of Johnson and Kongwu off the bench and, you know, bench for a start doesn't really matter. Like they're going to play more than they did last year. Um, both of them, I think. The last part of the question uh, kind of goes to that same thing as where basically there was a possibility that Capella starts, but Kongwu gets more and more minutes. That is uh, certainly possible. I've already said on the show I think it'll be closer to an even split this year than it ever has before. Again, provided both guys are on the team when we get there. Uh, last year, Capella averaged about 27 minutes a game, and Akong was about 23 minutes a game. That's already pretty close, but it's a little bit skewed, which I'll explain to you now. Capella missed about a month in a row. He played one game in a month, basically, from mid-December to mid-January because of injury. And Akongwu was playing about 32-ish minutes per game with Capella out. That's obvious. <laughs> You know, it'd be the same thing the other way around. If Kong was out, Capella played more, etc. Kong was playing full-on starters minutes with Capella out because that's what you have to do. But if you look at that, sort of before Capella went out, Kongwu was playing about 21 minutes a game in the first 28 games of the season. Then when Capella came back at full strength about a month later, it was back to about 21 minutes a game. So basically, it was essentially a 27-21 split last year in games where both guys played. Now, there's always going to be games where guys don't play. Kong missed a couple of games. Uh, Capella missed games. Um, I'm talking about the games where both guys are healthy and available, all that stuff. It was 27-21 or so last year. I would project a little bit closer this time around, and I think there might be games when Kong plays more. And I think also, um, we don't know this yet. I'll be the first, first to admit that, but I am guessing on this. I think they might be a little bit more willing to kind of actively manage the likes of Bogdanovich and Capella than McMillan was. Now, 
Capella missed that stretch of games last year for about a month, but once he came back, he played 38 consecutive games in the second half of the season and only missed the last year, the last game of the season because nobody played in that game. They weren't trying. It didn't matter. So essentially Capella played every single game in the second half of the season last year. I know they were trying to push for every single win, all that stuff. I think it'd be wise, in particular for Capella and Bogdanovich, to manage maybe, maybe missing back-to-backs. I think Capella in particular, because they have a Kong, if, if Kong was healthy and there's no reason to think he won't be at this point in time, it would make a lot of sense like to pick your spots. I'm not saying you do it all the time, but like even if Capella didn't have injury all year, all year long, which you can't bank on, I don't think you should be planning to play Clint more than 70 games, even without an injury, because he's got a lot of wear and tear on his body. And again, you probably have the best backup center in the entire league. Use that depth. Keep guys, keep guys fresh. Bogdanovich is the same thing. Uh, documented knee problems. When he's healthy, he's a huge effect for the team. When he's not healthy, he's obviously not the same player. So anyway, that's uh, something we'll talk about a lot more, I think, as we get into training camp and all that stuff. But for now, I think Akong will, will play more in games where Capella plays this coming season. I think I think if Capella is on the team, he's going to start. Um, and I think that we'll see beyond that. And as far as like closing games, I think you might see more of Akongu, and that's totally fine. Um, it, matchup based, performance based, that makes a lot of sense. But I do think that if Clint is around, he'll start, and you'll have it'll be Bane Clint, it'll be Johnson and Kongwu paired more together than than not. And uh, that's my general understanding for right now. But listen, as stuff changes in the future, I'll update my thoughts as we get into camp. If Snyder says opposite, we'll talk about that then. But uh, that's where we are right now on the power forward side. I get questions about this all stuff all the time. I'll continue to answer them as offseason goes along. But uh, there you go at this point in time. I am done rambling on today's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. As always, here in late August, we are, you know, less, we're about two months away from the opener right now, but we are way less than two months from the preseason opener and media day and all that stuff. So we're getting closer and closer, like six weeks or so from media day, and uh, we'll be wrapping up in the future. I have some guests lined up, hopefully even this week, but if not this week, maybe next week, etc. But please stay tuned. Please subscribe to the podcast and check us out anywhere you get your podcast, places like Apple and Spotify and YouTube. Five-star feedback on Apple and Spotify is appreciated. Follow us on Twitter slash X at LockedOnHawks. Follow me there if you'd like to at BT Roland. Please check out my written work, patreon.com slash BT Roland as well. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast, and we'll see you all next time.